Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, as always, Chris Chinchilla. I hope you're all well and safe and healthy. Things here in Berlin are returning slowly to a semblance of normality. I suppose it depends what your normal was. Um, hope others of you in the world are experiencing some similar positive changes and you're well. Um, I don't have many links this week. I've just actually been, I don't know, I've just been busy with work maybe or not finding anything very interesting. I only have three links, but I have a good interview uh, in the latter part of the show uh, with Dale Kim from Hazelcast. And Hazelcast is an in-memory database for very high-performance uh, processing of certain sorts of data. And we had a good chat a little while back. I'm working my way through my backlog right now. So I uh, look forward to that shortly. All right, um, I have a couple of very local links to share with you. I think we're all getting quite local right now. and But I'm going to open with something quite international. So this is an article from Simon Pitt on 1-0. Um, no more free lunch. Working at a tech company will never be the same. I think this is interesting in a couple of different ways. Um, we are seeing a lot of the big players in the tech world collapsing somewhat right now. Um, and I use the term tech loosely. Sometimes I think this is important to bear in mind. Things like WeWork, Uber, Airbnb, they're sort of tech companies. I wouldn't classify them as tech companies, actually. Shall we say big flying startups, maybe, is a, is a better term to actually use. But they were all somewhat dependent on in-person, um, and they're obviously finding it hard to keep up. But I think it probably also highlights, and I've seen this happening with many big and small businesses in the past couple of months, um, that it's highlighting problems they probably already had um, and uh, thus then having an extended period of no income um, but with lots of outgoings is meaning that it's highlighting and, and breaking for them those business models that hadn't quite proved themselves yet. So I guess this article highlights that uh, for that perspective but also for hygiene perspectives, many things will change. We're already seeing companies that were mostly opposed to remote working, but were reluctant to do it fully, um, saying that's now okay. Um, free lunches, I guess, from the money reason, but also the health reason of people sharing food may be less common. Although, I don't know, I feel like there's a, there's some easy-ish resolutions to that. Um, and new technology emerging in offices to handle these sorts of things, um, distance counters, people counters, um, not uh, sort of automatically opening windows, all sorts of random things like that. I mean, hey, the coffee machine, you need automation on the coffee machine, maybe. I don't know. I feel like sometimes there's simpler solutions to some of these problems, like um, using hand sanitizer before you use the coffee machine or washing your hands, something like that. feels like a simpler solution, maybe. <laughs> maybe a cheaper one, at least in the short term, which hopefully this will be relevant for. So I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll see. But the offices will change, maybe. I still wonder um, if a lot of the changes will be short-term. It depends, really. I suppose it depends what those changes are. And then especially it starts to reopen questions that people are already having about the effectiveness of open offices. Uh, open offices have been complained about for some time anyway, and now we will see that they're potentially uh, more problematic for health. So if we start putting up cubicles again, even if they're temporary, we start almost going back to where we were before. Um, and some people celebrate that and others uh, won't. Um, but yeah, things will change. Things will change, at least for the short term. And what will they be? Um, I'd actually love to hear some of your thoughts on this too. I mean, it doesn't really affect me so much. I haven't actually worked in an office with people 
in a convention office for some time. So it's hard for me to even remember what some of those things might have been. But we definitely have all sat there in offices with people <clears throat> all the time and stuff like that and sneezing and things and thinking, oh, my God. So, yeah, uh, in, some re- in some ways there will be some positives in encouraging people to be more hygienic and things like that um, in the long run. So we'll see. We'll see. Have a look and let me know what you think. Next on the subject of uh, things changing, um, this is actually fresh off the press, as it were. I was in a press conference for IFA, uh, Berlin's sort of consumer electronics show, uh, like CS here in Europe, um, and the press conference finished just a couple of hours ago. And contrary to what a lot of people may have expected, they are not cancelling their show this year. They are not even going fully remote. What they are doing instead is offering a stripped down and optimized version of the in-person event plus virtual events for other people. Um, And it was actually quite an interesting press conference. They were very professional about it. They were very balanced and pragmatic about it, very sort of traditional German way. People asked them about how much money are they losing? And they said, and whether you're skeptical or realistic about this, who knows, um, that uh, the money wasn't an important issue. They wanted to keep going with things and not just cancel. Uh, I'm not sure if that... Strictly true or not, who knows, but I can't imagine they will make a lot from the event they're planning. They're planning um, an event that will be kind of uh, smaller and shorter, and it won't be open to the public. It will only be open to uh, vendors, to industry, and to press. Um, I'm not 100% sure if that will include me. I think I was probably all on the lower, always on the lower echelons of their press access. And to be blunt, I write about such a small minority of EFA content. I don't know if it'd be worth it for me to go for them or for me. Um, but I'm also local, so that might be a positive. It might be interesting to see how they handle it. Um, some of the details were a little unclear, whether there'd be booths or not. Of course, who can attend, who will even want to attend is also unclear. But still, I am quite pleased to see that instead of just cancelling, they are trying and seeing what they can do and... Uh, Based on the current numbers in Berlin, which are reasonably low, and they are using very conservative um, numbers they will allow each day, so a maximum of 1,000 people, when actually the Berlin Senate has said to them by that point it will probably be up to 5,000, but they're allowing very big uh, bandwidth. Um, And then supplementing that with uh, remote interactions that are yet to be seen. And, of course, the cost to people for exhibiting, probably not for attending if it's all industry and press, is yet to be seen as well, uh, and if it will be successful. But I like the idea they're at least thinking about it and thinking of trying and maybe setting a blueprint for what uh, in-person events can be like for the short to medium term. Um, And I've been thinking this myself for some time. In fact, I wrote an article for Deezer a little while back covering this topic, uh, actually right at the beginning of all this, uh, about that hybrid events may be the future. Um, so, for example, take something like F8 or WWDC, where already people meet for kind of watch parties. And I think that may become a more common thing to do, a sort of meetup of meetups. Anyway, interesting stuff. Uh, I obviously, we'll have to wait a little while to see how well it works. I think September. But um, I like the fact they're trying. And finally, getting hyper-local here. Um, but I think it's going to be affecting people on a global scale. But this is just... a to a local article. This is actually from a magazine here in Berlin called Ex Berliner, um, an English magazine for here in Berlin, by Matt Unicom, uh, about um, restaurants, or no, reopening might push some Berlin restaurants over the edge. And I also saw a comment today in the news 
that uh, restaurants in their first week of being able to be open again were disappointed with the amount of people who came. Uh, I heard uh, also uh, secondhand from a restaurateur, uh, similar things. They were saying that the restrictions they have in place versus the amount of people they can have and the amount of staff they have to hire to enforce the regulations, it's not going to be worth it to a lot of them. They're actually going to probably be losing money. They probably, ironically, would make more money from government funding to be closed instead. But I think the government has the argument of you have to get things back and the government starts wants to start getting taxes and, and things like that instead of just handing out money. The coffers need to be refilled, I suppose. Um, and as you may or may not know here in Berlin, a lot of uh, the, uh, the um, hospitality industry is running often on a razor-edge profit anyway because people want things cheap and aren't necessarily willing to pay uh, good money for, for certain things. Um, let's not dig into that right now and any criticisms you may have of that statement, but um, it's kind of something that is mostly true. It's changing a little bit, but the vast majority of restaurants tend to focus on um, cheap and, and good value as opposed to high-quality service or food. Uh, and then that does mean that those restaurants, but also the ones that are um, probably in higher rent areas and operating more high-end are also, for different reasons, operating on razor-thin margins. Um, and so they probably never had a lot of money in the bank anyway. So having an extended period of making no money plus uh, an extended period of making little money, it is going to force a lot of places out. I've already seen some places closing. Um, and what that will mean in the long run, who knows? Um, some of the positives could be that in the long run, of course, it might relieve pressure on commercial rents. And when things come back to, quote unquote, more normal, um, rents are lower. So new businesses can open. Who knows? That obviously is, con is pure conjecture. But um, yeah, so there's not been a rush of people going out to support businesses. I mean, I've actually been trying. I'm kind of all for letting uh, businesses try and do what they can within within reason and within regulation, but um, I can't eat meals out three days, three times a day. I think there's a lot of people still working from home, which means they don't feel like going out for lunch. I'm actually kind of the opposite if I work from home, to be honest with you. People have got into a habit now. Um, I think people used to associate having lunch with around work and breaking that habit um, was difficult in the first place and now getting back to it again is equally as difficult. But I did have uh, lunch in a restaurant yesterday and it was quite nice to do it. That, that mental break from work I really missed, actually. Uh, and it's a, there's a, definitely a culture of doing that here. It's not common in every country, so maybe this doesn't seem that unusual to you. I know the UK, um, for example, people tended to grab lunch very quickly and go back to their desks, which I always found kind of unhealthy. Uh, so ironically, it's almost the reverse now. But um, I do miss that mental break. So let's see. Hopefully, all these places manage to hold in and, and keep just going um, for as long as possible and then can get back to doing normal business at some point soon. Um, but yeah, lots of uh, uncertainty in all sectors, but that one especially. I think uh, they've been some of the some of the hardest hit in the, in the short term anyway. So yeah, interesting. Um, interesting times as always. <laughs> All right, I hope you enjoyed my brief roundup of links. And now here is my interview with Dale Kim of Hazelcast. My name is Dale Kim. So I'm the Senior Director of Technical Solutions here at Hazelcast. So I'm responsible for go-to-market and product strategy for the technologies that we build. And Hazelcast has its roots in 
in-memory data grids, which is you know one way that you can take advantage of memory across a cluster of computers. And we've since expanded that. So we're more broadly an in-memory computing platform that is all about gaining performance for your uh, custom applications, as, as well as some of the applications you have in place. So to, so that, to, to people who may not know what that means, what does in-memory computing mean as opposed to, I guess, non-memory, in-memory computing? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. So in-memory simply means that you don't spill data onto disk. So you fully leverage the RAM so that you don't have the latencies that you normally uh, get as a result of writing to either a spindle-based disk or to solid-state drives. So as most people know that RAM accesses are far faster than other types of media, um, that's, that's where you get the advantage for your applications. Actually, because this is something I, I heard, and I, it was a sort of surprise to me when I heard it, that there is a significant, well, a noticeable speed difference between in RAM and SSD. I think a lot of people thought it would be very similar, but is it a, a difference of quite magnitude, or is it more of a technical speed difference because it's kind of already loaded by the operating system and things like that? Yeah, so there are a number of things that try to narrow that gap, but there still is a significant difference between, and we're talking about orders of magnitude difference in terms of latency between solid-state drives and, and memory. So we're, we're talking about memory accesses to being in the multiple gigabytes of data per second, where, whereas um, some of the higher-speed non-volatile RAM modules available will get into the low gigabytes, and that's why we were really important for some of our customers in industries like financial services where they need that ultra fast ability and storing it in memory is the only way that it makes sense. Okay. You mentioned one particular business there that, that uses this kind of setup, but are there any others as well that rely on that, that, uh, that, that speed boost is so necessary that it's worth it? Yeah, and there are verticals that care about that, like telecommunications, like the entire retail industry. Um, a lot of technologies company, technology companies rely on it. And what we're seeing is that a lot of times it's not only the huge performance gains that they need, but it's the ability to scale out once you have something in place and you're looking to do more, more innovative things with the technology. For example, um, if we look at uh, a, a broad use case like machine learning, or, or maybe sp to be a little bit more specific, fraud detection, mm -hmm. you might run a single fraud detection algorithm and it might give you a decent level of accuracy, but we're finding that, that customers are running multiple algorithms in production, in parallel, to try to get a composite score that helps to better identify what is fraudulent. And as you probably know, fraud detection isn't just a a simple binary decision. There's the, the notion of finding what is fraudulent, but also making sure that you don't have too many false positives mm -hmm. because that will hurt you as a company, um, mostly in terms of, of losing out on revenue as a result of the transaction fees. So being able to be more accurate with some of the calculations that you make as a result of running multiple algorithms in parallel is something that needs performance. And a lot of people might dismiss that as, well, you know, I, I can't get that that extra performance unless I put a lot of investment into my hardware. So it's not an, a route or an option for us. Whereas by leveraging software like Hazelcast, the use of in-memory and the use of speeds can be fully justified because of the actual you know, top and bottom line gains from having these more accurate calculations. 
And is in-memory computing anything new? I get the feeling it might be one of these uh, buzzwords that has sort of come back into favour, but is probably not necessarily a new thing. Is that wrong or you're, right? You're absolutely right. So in-memory computing has been around for a long time. And one thing that has held back from people fully adopting it is simply the cost of RAM. So while RAM is so much faster than SSDs, the cost is quite a bit more as well. So there is a bit of a trade-off and a sliding scale there. And we, we continually hear about the, the dropping prices of RAM. And only till recent times are customers seeing, or, or companies in general seeing, that now for some of their use cases, it absolutely makes sense to make the investment in RAM because the ROI is there. And then we're working with companies like Intel who have come up with new technologies that help drop prices even further. So you might have heard of Intel's um, Optane technology, which is a new way of storing data in memory. It'll, it'll look like either persistent RAM or, non, or volatile RAM, but the underlying technology is quite a bit different in terms of not using transistors. And it, it's a very, very interesting technological um, advance. But that helps to lower the costs of, uh, costs of volatile RAM usage and can help more companies get involved with these higher speeds and this greater ability to do more work in the same amount of time. I'm actually not familiar with that. Can you explain any more or is what you said already kind of enough without going into a crazy amount of detail? <laughs> yeah, there, there's some really fascinating gory details behind it. But you can just think of it at a higher level that Optane is a technology that can be used in one of two ways. One, as an alternative to solid state drives um, or as an alternative to dynamic RAM. And so with that capability, you can have either a very fast SSD or you can have not volatile RAM that's almost as fast as dynamic RAM and in many cases just as fast, but for half the cost. And if you can see price drops in the volatile RAM area that significant, then I, I think suddenly the notion of in-memory computing becomes a, an obvious choice for a lot of companies. And I mean, for the average kind of desktop user, you're probably looking at somewhere between 8 and 64 gig of RAM, usually. <laughs> it's yep. a fairly large range, but, um, but I would imagine that um, even... Even that is is probably not quite enough for most of these use cases, or or maybe it is. Like, what? How how much uh, RAM are you usually using in a in a server or in a uh, a virtual machine on top of a server, etc.? Yeah, we're we're actually dealing with clusters of computers. Okay. So yeah. one thing that we enable is tying together multiple servers so that they have a scalable and shared pool of RAM that can be used by these enterprise applications. So when you think about fraud detection or payment processing or even running chatbots in an artificial intelligence type of environment, you're going to need hundreds of gigabytes of data from that includes customer data, new transactions, and any business data that helps with some of the calculations that you're running. So th this is necessarily about huge allocations of RAM that are required for these enterprise applications, typically in a mission-critical or, or business-critical environment. Okay. And are these uh, similar to servers that people might be using in quote-unquote traditional cluster-slash-cloud computing, or are they different, or are they just configured differently? Uh, what, yeah, is there much overlap between, between them and more normal, shall we say, um, yeah, clusters? Yeah. 
So from a cluster standpoint and implementation standpoint, yes, it'll look like any other distributed system where you'll have these multiple instances or on-premises, you might have multiple nodes that are connected together with some underlying software. The difference of what we provide is the management of the memory. So you might build an application that can run on top of a distributed database, but that doesn't necessarily take advantage of all the RAM that you have. It tries to be very efficient about it because it relies more on disk. Whereas we're about being very efficient about the RAM usage so that you get that faster speed. So quickly to fill in on that before we dive into what Hazelcast actually offers. So in theory, I could run any sort of normal cluster-friendly database on top of an in-memory um, cluster and it would work. It just may not necessarily see the benefits so much. Well, you can see those as two separate things. So yeah. you can think of the database as the large-scale storage and then you can plant an in-memory technology next to it and use that in, in one instance okay. as a, a cache. Yeah. So yeah. any of the frequently accessed data will be immediately available as RAM. So they're very complementary in that sense. Okay. And there are other opportunities for building custom applications that are purely in memory that you can build and in a way, sometimes eliminate the database as part being part of the critical path of your application processing. Let's have a look at the products that you have or the, the software that you have. The first I could see is Hazelcast IMDG, which I think is mostly what we've been talking about. Um, Correct. IMDG, I'm guessing, standing for in-memory data grid. Correct. Uh, how does that compare to, say, for someone coming from a more traditional data store, how does it compare and, and what's kind of the learning curve of the, a developer or a, an implementer getting used to using it instead or alongside or, yeah. Yeah, and I, uh, an in-memory data grid looks very much like a database and has a lot of the similar concepts in terms of holding data for you and giving it to you when it's available. And the difference is around the programming model. So where databases, you generally process some small set of data, uh, some subset of the data that you have. You might read it from the database, do some processing and write it back. So mm -hmm. it's more about storage, whereas an IMDG is more about the processing. So it's more about pushing uh, the ability to parallelize your applications and handle all your data at once. And the, the, the comparison, the, the, the description I like to use is, imagine you're write, running an application on your desktop, and you, like you said, you might have perhaps 64 gigabytes of data. What if you suddenly have 500 gigabytes of data available at your disposal, and you didn't have to do anything to add that? You just automatically got it. And that's what an IMDG does for you. It allows you to, to continue with the programming model that you're accustomed to using your variables and accessing data but at the same time, because of the backend distribution capabilities, uh, data objects are, are swapped between the different servers in your cluster. So it looks like your computer that you're running on suddenly has a lot more RAM than it actually physically has. Mm -hmm. And actually, I, mean, I can see an image here that alludes to some of what we've discussed. So you have your clients going into the Hazelcast cluster and then out the other side to traditional RDMSs, Mongo, Cassandra, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just wondered, I mean, this might be where it's been a little bit of time since I've developed applications that needed this, but is it comparable to something like Redis or something like that? Or am I not quite in the right ballpark? Oh, you're absolutely in the right okay. ballpark. So one thing that Redis has done over the years is 
focus on the caching side of the business. And they're good for that because you can scale out and leverage RAM. But again, the, the programming model is a little bit different. And we're finding that we're better for the use cases where you need a lot of parallelism and need a lot of data available at your, your disposal without having to think about reading data, processing it, and then writing it back out. Because mm -hmm. all of that data is just immediately available in our variables and developers simply continue writing their applications, perhaps in Java or in .NET, and it will treat the system as if it just has a lot of RAM. So we do see Redis a lot in terms of some of the lower, uh, some of the more simpler use cases around caching. Mm -hmm. But when it gets to, to more advanced capabilities that leverage in memory, like building advanced custom applications around fraud detection or mm -hmm. any type of machine learning inference environment, that's where we really make it simpler for the business. Okay. And on the subject of sort of parallelization and, and scaling, do you integrate with things like um, Kubernetes and Mesos or does that sort of go against the ethos of performance somewhat or... Yeah, that actually fits quite well with okay. us because simplicity and ease of deployment, ease of maintenance, scalability, elasticity, agility, all, all of those abilities and all yeah. those benefits of modern architectures is, is something that we were built for. So we absolutely run with Kubernetes and in, in Docker containers and a number of our customers are, are leveraging that. And because we have some of these cloud native capabilities where you can just add a new node, a new instance yeah. and automatically take advantage of that, then it works quite well for us. One of the interesting capabilities of our, our product is this notion of auto-discovery and auto-provisioning. So okay. in, in a lot of distributed environments, you have to pre-install software on a server and set up the configuration. Whereas with our software, if you run two applications on separate servers, they'll auto-broadcast they'll broadcast and then auto-discover each other and just automatically create a cluster, mm. which greatly simplifies the deployment of additional nodes in a containerized environment. So you just start deploying more applications. They will auto-discover, if, if they're configured to auto-discover, that is. So you don't, you don't always have to have the applications talking to each other, but they will discover each other and then they'll continue to add to each other to build out a bigger cluster. And so that yeah. greatly simplifies the DevOps and the, the overall operations and maintenance of the yeah. system. I was just wondering, I know with with Kubernetes, for example, you could set things like memory allocation and stuff like that, and I was just in, intrigued to know how that might work or or not. I guess the again the whole point of something like Kubernetes and integrating with something like Hazelcast is that you don't have to care too much. You know, you just say I want this, and if it's available, you get it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, okay. Now you also have uh, Hazelcast Jet. Uh, UltraStream processing framework. Is this yep. something like Kafka or something else? It, it is a complement to Kafka. Okay. So if you think about Kafka as the data storage, which which is a a very rough way of describing mm. what they do, but but it's it's for storing streams. And so we'll read data from Kafka, do the processing, and then deliver it to some output. And that output could be a database. It could be another Kafka topic. It could be a dashboard. So we're about doing some work on the data. And that's why we, we work quite well with Kafka. And in mm -hmm. fact, a lot of our customers use that joint configuration where they'll have Kafka as that initial data source. Okay. And all of the data you know, feeds into Kafka. And then we read from Kafka to do the processing. Yeah. Maybe something more comparable to, I don't know if, if, I don't know. I'm never sure how well known they are. Uh, Flink. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you could say we're we're you know in, in the same space as which is <laughs> now owned by Alibaba, so not a not Correct. a great uh, <laughs> 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 a big competitor now, unfortunately. Um, yeah. yeah, and you again you mentioned here the sort of parallelism with um uh DAG's directed I never know how to say the second one, acyclic graphs. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Sort of multiple it. parallelism, I guess. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then finally, you just have this kind of cloud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, is that your? Yeah, it is. It is a, a you. Your well, what is it? Yeah, because it's not your own cloud. It's you kind of making tools available onto other clouds. So, is it? Yeah, what are you adding on to those cloud providers? Yeah, it's it's our implementation of IMDG at least for now. So okay. it's our implementation of IMDG in the cloud. So okay. it's a managed service. So any business out there who is committing to the cloud, building applications and their whole infrastructure in the cloud, and they're looking for performance acceleration, they can turn to us as an add-on into their virtual private cloud and get the in-memory capabilities to add speed and scale and with all the capabilities around reliability and security, mm. they can make sure that they can continue running a, an enterprise-grade uh, deployment. And would this mean that the the instances that people use in the cloud version would have to meet specific requirements to make the in-memory possible? You can kind of think of it the other way in uh-huh. terms of they can pick what instances they want and then we can take advantage of the memory that are okay. available. So this is trying to simplify the notion of making your applications run faster. There are a lot of engineers out there who are very good at tuning applications and trying to eke out the very most out of their hardware or their virtual instances. But everybody knows that takes a lot of time and it's an exact science, even though there are some very good best practices on how to get there. And using in-memory, especially in the cloud, is, is a much easier, much more efficient way of squeezing out that extra performance and getting more value out of what you're spending. I guess I'm just trying to drill down the layers of abstraction here because I'm kind of thinking that often a lot of instances in the cloud, there's everything's virtualized and even the memory <laughs> may not be always in memory. Unless I'm misunderstanding something, I'm just kind of trying to to wonder if you lose that performance ever so slightly because of the virtualization um, and potentially the shared nature of cloud instances as well. Is there like a, a kind of minimum spec that you recommend people use and to not use uh, shared instances and things like that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And so if the thinking is I have an on-premises cluster and I want to move to the cloud to gain performance, I think that is where you might be disappointed because you're absolutely right. There is some performance hit as a result of the migration. But what we, we're seeing as the more important way to think about it is if you've already committed to the cloud or, or have applications that you know, you're starting to migrate over, you will not get the same performance that you might have expected despite knowing the underlying characteristics of your instances. And so you would add on an in-memory technology to help get the speeds that you want. So the starting point is you have cloud applications. How do you make them run faster? Mm. Okay. 
And actually, one of the use cases you mentioned here that I wouldn't mind knowing a little bit more about is the Internet of Things use case. And I'm guessing this is for the other side of the Internet of Things, processing the data they're producing, not not using IoT devices for in memory, because I'm guessing they're generally fairly memory limited, but <laughs> it's more the back end. Yes, that is correct. So you'll have these di- devices that a lot of times are are very limited in what they do, and they're more about just creating data and then delivering it to some destination. And a lot of the times that destination might be a mini data center or what, what people call the edge. So mm-hmm. ed, the notion of edge computing is about deploying computer hardware at remote locations, taking data from this remote data source and doing processing remotely from your centralized data center, and then perhaps filtering that data or doing some calculations that are then sent over to your central data center, which is oftentimes the cloud, and then you can do some more larger scale processing from there. Mm-hmm. So this whole notion of edge to cloud processing is something that we're hearing a lot. And our on-premises, our, our software technology is great for some of those simplified and limited environments. And then when you tie it together with our cloud managed service, you get that end-to-end processing capability. You gave me a very nice lead into what I wanted to ask next there. So um, I have lost track of the date in the current situation, to be honest with you. Okay, two weeks ago, (laughs) um, you announced this managed service, uh, multi-cloud, cloud-to-edge applications, a couple of the things you just mentioned in your answer there. So if there's any more detail you can give around that product announcement, what have we not mentioned yet that's worth mentioning? Yeah, um, some of the capabilities that we've included in our latest offering. So if, if actually, if I can step back. So we've had a cloud offering before. It's known as yeah. Cloud Starter. Yeah. And so that's good for anybody who wants to see how in-memory can help them in the cloud. So there are some limitations and um, it's a self-service environment, but it's not something that you would necessarily run in a larger scale. So for something that you want to run in a production environment, we announced Hazelcast Cloud Enterprise. And that obviously is for these bigger implementations that require a lot of the capabilities like security and scale that that companies want to run for their mission critical or business critical applications in the cloud. Some of the capabilities that are going to be required include things like certification. So SOC 1, SOC 2, um, PCI certification that we'll handle on behalf of of customers um, as well as some of the the low level security capabilities around authentication and authorization, and so um, we we provide the capabilities that they otherwise would have to take care of on premises and free them up to focus on some of the other competitive advantage capabilities that they're looking at. Mm-hmm. I guess looking forward now, what's on the roadmap for the next six months to a year or so? Yeah, a lot of a lot of great capabilities around integrating in-memory processing with stream processing are down the road. And we're looking at a lot of ways in which we can further tighten that integration. But but so far, a lot of our customers, or a good number of our customers, are using both of our main software technologies together to create these ultra-fast, real-time stream processing applications. But in the area of IMDG itself, there are a number of capabilities that we're adding on to make it look a bit more like a database. And so we'll be making some some big announcements later this year around the early Q3 timeframe that simplify the use of an IMDG even further 
So again, it'll look more like a database and, and provide some of the capabilities that you would expect from a, a database so that we can now open it up to even more use cases. Okay. And actually, I, the, the question I've been asking a little bit recently, especially when it comes to me adding the the article side of this with a, I like to do a bit more of a practical hands-on. And I can see you do have um, open source versions of IMDG and JET, which makes sense. Um, yep. What's the differences between the open source version and the, the commercial versions? Yeah, so the open source versions have almost all of the capabilities you need to get started and perhaps even run a production environment. And where the enterprise features fill in are about scaling out at, at a much broader scale, um, business continuity and security. So one of the capabilities in the business continu continuity realm is this, this feature known as WAN replication. So by allowing us to replicate our data in real time to some remote site, you, you have this disaster recovery capability to make sure that you know, if there's a site-wide failure, that you have this backup that's ready to go using an active-active topology. And that WAN replication will be important in the cloud where you might run a cluster on one cloud provider and a mirrored cluster on another cloud provider. And so the whole notion of cloud vendor lock-in is, is greatly reduced, but you also have the ability to distribute clusters, especially if the data is shared globally um, into di different geographical regions. And by using our enterprise version, that replication is greatly simplified. So, you know, software handles it all for you. Cool. Um, final question. It's always a vague one, but sometimes you never know. Uh, anything we haven't mentioned that you want to make sure is mentioned? <laughs> yeah, I, I think we've got it all covered. Yeah. Um, I was kind of hinting at, at that last part about this notion of WAN replication of across clouds. Yeah. And by having our managed service that uh, in, in the cloud, that tends to be this notion of continuity in the cloud tends to be an, an overlooked issue that, that people think, well, you know, the, the, the cloud provider is going to provide all the continuity I need. So if something fails, they'll make sure that runs. But you have to think about what happens to your software if it's running in an instance and it goes down. So yeah. if it's a, a, an instance within a single uh, zone, then you might have a distributed system that will easily handle that. But what if the entire zone goes down, which mm -hmm. is unlikely, but... It has happened. It has happened. So... <laughs> If you have some of these applications that are revenue generating and make a lot of money on a per minute basis yeah. or even a per second basis, you don't want that to go down at all because that could represent a lot of lost money. So how do you safeguard against that? And yeah. a lot of our customers are using strategies around business continuity on an on-premises um, standpoint, but as they move to the cloud, they're going to have to think even more about that. And we help reduce that quite a bit. So that, that's one of the big, big points around moving to the cloud, just making sure that you not only have some of the performance and the scalability and the elasticity issues that you would expect, but that extra level of reliability that your underlying software will handle is, is something that people need to consider. That was my interview with Dale Kim of Hazelcast. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, actually, quite a few uh, articles came out over the past uh, week or so. I have a write-up of GitHub Satellite, um, gone, gone Remote But Not Forgotten was my title for that, which summarizes things up nicely. A roundup of uh, OpenStack Suri, that recent release of OpenStack. A longer article on measuring metrics in open source projects, which was quite interesting to do. 
I think also I had a Grafana post in there, just probably actually last episode, but didn't quite make it in. Um, what else? Um, yeah, the other podcast is still in progress. We're recording the second episode of The Board Game Jerk sometime soon, probably in the next few days. Um, I am doing some live streams probably right after this, actually. So they're probably already out by the time you hear this. So go and have a look at those um, on my YouTube and Twitch channels. You can find the links at kristenchiller.com. Um, hmm, I think that'll probably do for now. There's been other things I've been kind of chipping away at, but always part-time means that every week I have only done like a small word of progression on them. So, yeah. Obviously not attending any events anytime soon. I was due to be covering uh, Jamstack Conf, which I still am covering. Covering remote conferences feels kind of odd sometimes. I think mostly because tends to mean my attention is split (laughs) so i don't always focus enough to have much to say but um, i'll keep an eye on a few of these i managed to do the github one so there might be more there's a couple quite a few this week it seems to have gone back to normality where people are scheduling too many conferences at the same time and in some respects it's kind of easier because uh, you don't have to book a venue or anything like that so (laughs) so i think this week there's almost like three overlapping events i should be covering and then again the time zones being what they are, I mean, um, they're not always at a great time and then I intend to cover them from the videos and you don't get around to it, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I'll do what I can. So, uh, yes, until the next time, if you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, share. Please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. And if you have been, thank you so much for listening.